0: On May 6th, 2010, the New York Stock Exchange plummeted almost 1,000 points before regaining nearly all of it in the course of only 15 minutes. Experts still debate what exactly caused this drop, which became known as the Flash Crash. The U.S. Department of Justice brought criminal counts against a trader for manipulating the market, so that might have been part of it. But the big headline around the event was that it had something to do with algorithmic or high-frequency trading, trades made by computer systems in order to exploit small differences in prices. Pieces of critical writing, such as Michael Lewis's book Flash Boys, A Wall Street Revolt, cast high-frequency trading as first, new, and second, as a distinctly bad development through which elites had rigged, and we can probably put rigged here in quotation marks, the market. But as usual, realities are far more complicated than such simple morality tales suggest. Also, reality is, in some sense, more boring. In the book, Automating Finance, Infrastructures, Engineers, and the Making of Electronic Markets, Juan Pablo Pardo Guerra, shows how using computers to automate financial systems has a much longer history than popular accounts of the flash crash and high-frequency trading suggest, going back at least to the 1970s. It's a story that involves not well-known elites, but anonymous, low-status back-office employees who slowly started applying computers to new areas of business. It's a tale of the slow creation of financial digital infrastructures that now come to shape many aspects of our world. It's a chronicle of moral complexities and compromises, not a black and white adventure involving good guys and bad guys. In my conversation with Juan Pablo, who goes by JP, we also talk about his more recent projects on how various quantitative metrics have been applied to managing universities, the effects such systems have, and how people who care about universities can resist such changes. One small note, if you hear an unusual sound at some points during the interview, it is not your ears. It is JP's pet hen. In a small bit that I edited out, JP asked if he should take the hen outside so it would be quieter, but I am pro-pet and asked him not to disturb her. So here and there, you will hear the contributions the hen made to our discussion. I hope you enjoy this conversation. I had a lot of fun talking to J.P., as you'll hear. Get excited. J.P., thanks so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you so much for the opportunity to talk a little bit about automating finance
0: it's a it's a really great book I loved reading it over the past couple of weeks um, how do you explain to strangers what it's about and what you were trying to do with it
1: so I guess that the basic premise of the book is this idea that technologies and markets which are so advanced nowadays with high frequency trading and sort of algorithmic trading are the products of these Sort of masterminds in the executive office and what i try to do in automating finances show that actually they're the product of a lot of contingency build up and sort of very invisible folks sort of working in the basements of organizations and building those organizations bit by bit, um yeah. chip by chip and circuit by circuit so so it's really about this this layering of technologies and how a lot of what we think is super high tech and super sophisticated is just the product of of this accumulation of of work that is often invisible and not recognized. Mm-hmm. As you point out
0: in the in the book, the the rise of automated trading systems is fairly recent. So for most of us, it happened during our lifetimes, So what drove the development of these systems and, and who got them going?
1: So one of the interesting things is that the early drive to automate things occurred in the back office, which tended to be a low status part of the trading process, which was actually dominated by lots of clerks, many of whom tended to be women from sort of lower classes, and that were seen as being too costly in in the sort of post-Second World War markets as trading volumes started to increase. And automation really was initially uh, driven by the, the desire to reduce costs in the back office and then traveled into the front office, into the actual trading, when the techies that were hired to keep maintain the systems in the back office decided, hey, we can do new things with these fancy computers and we can change finance uh, by sort of using excess idle power uh, in these machines for other applications. So it's interesting because it's a story that actually starts like many stories of automation with the automation of the most precarious folks in the system and then has all these uh, repercussions for other mm-hmm. parts of the trading process, for other bits of finance much later on. Um, but it's, yeah, a story that, yeah. that is all about this this mm-hmm. wave of automation that is low end and so forth.
0: Yeah, I mean, part of the story you tell is about status, right? I mean, it's important that they're entering through this low status place rather than the kind of gentleman's clubs that you that you talk about on the front end. Is that part of your picture?
1: Yeah, completely. So so at least in the case of the British markets, uh, so the book studies American and British markets. In the American markets, I focus on the New York Stock Exchange, which is the sort of canonical market for the US. And in the case of the British markets, I look at the London Stock Exchange, which for most of the 20th century was the key and only trading site for, for instruments in, in Britain. And... What was really clear about the story of automation is that it was a very classed story in the sense that trading on the trading floor was dominated by these gentlemanly individuals. They were all guys up until the 1970s. Um, They had very clear uh, sort of cultures of how to behave on the floor. They were a sort of brotherhood that kept the floor very, very tight and um, maintained certain practices that echoed a lot of the elite practices of England. So, for example, they had waiters on the mm-hmm. trading floor that would serve the members of the organization um, throughout the day. The bathrooms between members and staff were not shared. Um, mm-hmm. So, it was a very, very classed organization. And a lot of the story of automation was these very sort of lower class folks that had technical backgrounds. Uh, Also, trying to change that part of finance in London. The story Mm -hmm. is different in the U.S., of course, because class was not the same in in America. But in the case of London, it was essentially a story of class and status. Mm -hmm.
0: So how did you get into this topic? You got a bachelor's degree in physics, if I'm right. And how did you go from being a physicist to being a sociologist of finance and other quantitative systems?
1: So I do blame STS for that, uh, and I do blame Donald McKenzie for that. So he's a terrific writer. And when I was in physics, I was starting to think about other options in life, and um, going or studying finance seemed interesting. Uh, I had maybe at some point the opportunity of becoming one of those physicists who work in finance and who sort of do models and... and uh, sort of create, extract value out of stats. But I found uh, words that were important in the early 2000s around financial markets, and they were fascinating, and all the epistemological issues around markets were really cool. And that's what drove me to study finance. Um, hmm. And a lot of it had to do with with being at Edinburgh later on for my PhD, and being at a center of social studies of finance at the time, which was uh, sort of useful and important in shaping uh, the projects at that point in time.
0: Yeah, no doubt. I mean, that really was the, the place to be for that topic.
1: Yeah, completely. Edinburgh was one of the key places to be. It was a fantastic experience. And... Uh, I think it was it was interesting because it it made me engage with literature that I had never engaged with as a sort of physics undergrad. <laughs> uh, but it was also interesting because of the location. There was a little bit of like ethnography almost in having to deal with some of the the class issues in the United Kingdom that then uh, was included in the book rather than. In the original dissertation, so it was it was an interesting experience.
0: Mm-hmm. And what kind of research did you do uh, for this book?
1: So a lot of it was just talking to folks in finance. Um, it was really difficult, actually, because the finding just the names of the people working in the basements was something that was quite complicated. I mean, these are people that are never necessarily interviewed or known about outside right. of the circles in which they they operate so uh even though we have like these histories of uh, famed brokerage houses and we have amazing books like michael lewis's flash boys etc cetera, etc cetera, we tend not to know the names of those actually building the systems yeah and discovering those names for uh arranging interviews was was a mess. And I, I was very lucky because I found, I sort of managed to find one name that became the gatekeeper to a lot of the interviews. Hmm. Uh, and that was really critical because from then on, I could sort of assemble a mass of, uh, I think it was like 20, to 30 uh, interviews that ended up being central for, for the book. That's but great, it was man. really it's It's actually quite difficult to look at these invisible folks.
0: I totally know what you mean. I oh this is like the trick I try to teach grad students is to get into the the belly of the beast and not just talk to leaders for all kinds of reasons i I think the the middle and lower level people often have more interesting stories to tell you about these things.
1: yeah yeah so i I remember one interview with a super high ranking member of these the stock exchange and mm-hmm. everything that person said was predictable because it was what you could read from the financial times or the economist. And then I had like the interviews with the folks who were working in the basement, developing the systems back in the seventies. And those were like three hours long. They gave you papers. They gave you documents that they had, managed to sort of keep they had their own personal records it was amazing finding those folks but they are completely invisible if you google them they basically do not exist that's how bad it is
0: (laughs) right on and do you think i mean what do you, you know beyond the the range of stories and the materials and also i think a fresh perspective because they haven't been talked to and it's not in the kind of official histories, what else do you think going to these kind of lower level folks gets you, just kind of in terms of method, you know, like what what, what, what else, why else should we be talking to these folks rather than just the leaders?
1: So I think one of the key things, and this is something that also comes across your work uh, on maintenance, is that it changes and it shifts the way we think about modern institutions so this emphasis on certain types of work that are like disruptive and so forth really hides the fact that a lot of work in the sort of modern world is about keeping things together and it's in this yeah. act of keeping things together that um, sort of culture is reconstructed, that meaning is made, that institutions change, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera, and that a lot of politics is often is often done without it being visible because it's it's mundane. It's something that seems trivial, that no one cares about. it's quote unquote boring, but it's so central to, to the fabric of social life, that that it has to be studied. So, looking at these folks is is really really important uh, because of that. And mm-hmm. and it's something again that we often miss um, in higher ed studies. For example, they tend to focus on the sort of higher actors within organizations. In org studies, they also look at generally folks that are seen to be in managerial positions. When a lot of the work is in the bottom of the organization.
0: Along these lines, can you tell us a bit about what you mean by capture um, and what this notion of capture does for you?
1: So in the book, I have like these different notions of what or how the techies managed to change the organization and, and the idea of capture uh, was trying to convey this process where um, The techies were slowly building an empire without the sort of important players in the organization necessarily knowing about that or controlling it (laughs) because they were doing it slowly and they were occupying all these niches within the organization over time. So initially they started in the back office with settlement and clearing, which no one in the sort of trading floor wanted to be associated with because it's very low status. And then they started building systems around the trading floor slowly, creating divisions, uh, getting more money from income that was derived from new projects and growing their numbers and stuff from an original handful of a few dozen in the late 1960s to more than 3,000 in the mid-1980s. And by that time, they had become the organization effectively. They were running yeah. things, even though they were not formally the sort of most important players in the in the stock exchange. So that that was that was a key idea of uh, capture. That it was about this encroaching in different units of the organization mm-hmm. and slowly displacing um, the power of the original actors, the members of the stock exchange, and becoming the organization, capturing its sort of logics, its way of behaving, its budget, absolutely everything.
0: Yeah, I loved it. I, it reminded me uh, in parts of uh, Nathan ensmanger's book, The Computer Boys Take Over. Um, and Nathan tells the story of basically like male computer geeks um, coming into organizations, especially, you know, corporations. And there being a lot of anxiety about kind of turf between these techie people and the various organizational units they're they're supposed to uh, relate to. And the interesting thing for me was that, I mean, not that there's not anxiety in your story. There certainly is anxiety. But um, but like because it's so invisible and because people often don't even see it happening, there's like not necessarily turf wars all the time, you know, it's, it's, it's like slow accretion kind of wins the day or something like that.
1: Yeah. 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 There's like, we, there's a fable on that.
0: (laughs) Yes, exactly. Uh, Part of what you do in automating finances is challenge the picture wherein machines replace people in, in social relations in some kind of s- simple, direct way and show that in many cases, the introduction of technologies actually preserved structures that had existed for a long time. So what's the kind of too easy narrative of change that you saw before you started working on this? And and how do you try to complicate this picture?
1: So I think that the, the simple... Um... The simple narrative is the one that we get with uh, machines taking over the market. That is seen in public discussions around high-frequency trading, algorithmic trading, and all these these key things that are going on in finance. And a lot of that, or yeah, a lot of that is framed in terms of humans losing control. And this is like a mm-hmm. traditional trope of of innovation and automation and and I think that part of the the logic of the book is trying to say it's not necessarily losing control, but actually these systems were still preserving social relations in significant ways. So, for example, the way people traded across firms, uh, the preferences of trading between firms were preserved in some of the systems, uh, some of the ways in which finance sort of operates, simply automated aspects of the trading process, but preserved a lot of the social networks and cultures elsewhere. So it's, it's not a story of um, technology dissolving the social, but it's rather a, a story of technologies re- reproducing or mirroring in many ways, existing social relations and preserving them in, in novel ways. Um, mm-hmm. I think that that's one of the, I I, it's, I think so I mentioned that at some point in the book, that there's like a classical trick in history, which is saying, oh, look, you think things are new, but they're actually quite old. And yeah. that's part of what I try to do in the book, um, which is saying these things might seem fancy and new, but actually they've been uh, reproducing patterns from the past for a while.
0: yeah. I love that. Well, you know, when I read "infrastructures" in your um in your book title, I was like, okay, well, we're we're talking about automated finance systems. Those rely on infrastructures, um, you know, and th- that'll be part of the story. It'll be a you know a, a central part of the tale that's being told here. But and in fact, like you take that that metaphor and reality of infrastructures way far back into the. The history of the London Stock Exchange is so like, oh, you know, this always there was always an infrastructure to the the stock exchange. We can't like forget this longer picture of the the structures that have supported these kinds of activities.
1: So I think that one of the things that is lost in a lot of discussions about technology and finance and more generally technology and society is that it seems to um, sort of focus on flashy things rather than very mundane technologies that have been structuring and shaping action for a while. I mean, the trading floor was a technology. If it had had a different shape, finance would have been different. Finance in Chicago was different than finance in London, in part because of how the trading floor materialized things and made certain forms of action possible. Top hats in the trading floor were a technology that was doing things. It was sort of materializing class in very specific ways, it was signaling things, and it had a sort of role to play in how people talk to each other, signal things, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that one of the things that tends to happen is this focus on nice, new, shiny things rather than these longer trajectories of how uh, material cultures have been part of action forever and mm-hmm. infrastructures have existed in num- numerous ways over a long time. And they've been essential for materializing relations, for making or facilitating certain types of relations in society, in the market, et cetera, et cetera.
0: hmm That makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I think another kind of STS classic science and technology studies move you make is that when you look into the guts of automated finance systems, you you find the kind of deeply human including capacities like charisma and morality uh there so can you tell us a bit about how your actors attempted to make markets moral as you put it
1: so there's like a bunch of stories on this um the best one i think is the the u.s story where there's this like really eccentric character frederick niemeyer that um was associated to a bunch of really weird things he was a supporter of hayek a financial supporter of hayek Uh, he was a friend of Mises. he had this weird um journal-like publication where he talked about calvinism and economics and he was one of the first to patent a an order book an automated system for trading in stock markets. And he saw that as a moral solution to some of the problems of the New York Stock Exchange, in particular, the intermediaries in the New York Stock Exchange, who he thought were making too much money out of the trades. And actually, that narrative of intermediaries making too much money and having to make more efficient markets to make them fairer is something that is has motivated regulation for 50 years now. And and the UK, it was sort of similar when the techies that worked in developing the London Stock Exchange's systems left to create their own stock exchange. They were very explicit in framing it as a sort of moral counterpoint to the elite gentlemanly uh, sort of character of their old employer, and they sort of based it in a completely different place. They placed it in Covent Garden rather than the city of London because... It was um, a way of signaling a connection to older markets and markets that were open to the public. They tried to even call it the people's exchange at some point to make it yeah. clear that it wasn't about the rich gentlemanly folks. So framings of morality have been central to the design, the uh, sort of justification, et etc., et cetera, of all these systems uh, for a while. And it's. It's something that comes across in in automating finance, and also in other narratives like um, Lewis's flashpoints, which is all again about these better, fairer markets for everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting
0: uh, when you when you talk about Lewis. I mean, I think that Lewis. I mean, I love Lewis's writing. Often, I think he's just a very clear and evocative writer. But I f- also feel like there's uh ways in which you challenge his book flash boys in some ways and that i feel like part of the story he's telling in flash boys and that others were telling about these systems too i mean he's not alone in this is that they're kind of uh an example of elites rigging the system kind of against the you know main street or something like that um and and I think you, you know, that, it, that in some sense, it's a sign of corruption or something like that, that we we could say. But I think that you want to like complicate the moral picture um, at play. And so how does the story of stock market fragmentation help us help us see like complexities around the morality of these things?
1: So I think there's a there's an interesting case with the U.S. markets in particular that has to do with. Um, this fragmentation. So the the world of policy around stock markets had a choice in the 1970s of going in one of two directions. One was centralizing all trading in one single venue, and that would have made access to markets in theory better. This was actually supported by some of the big brokerage firms who would have Mm. seen... uh, sort of the price of trading or the cost of trading fall because they didn't have to deal in 20 different venues. It was only in one. And it was opposed by the mm-hmm. New York Stock Exchange because um, it would have taken away some of their control. There was actually a memo from the New York Stock Exchange at some point in time saying, yeah, we're fine with that if we are the central market for the United States, <laughs> Yeah, right. which of course didn't <laughs> fly with all the regional markets and right. and one of the and, and the thing there is that the choice between these these two things was was framed as a moral choice uh, between a market that was sort of fair that provided equality of access to everyone the centralized market and one that was providing more efficient services and cheaper services through fragmentation because if you can inter- interconnect things with with uh, telecoms, then you didn't need a centralized market. You could have many decentralized markets, and the sort of efficiency of competition would create better outcomes for everyone. This is like the traditional story of U.S. Uh, yeah. regulation of tech. Um, competition is good, and that's going to that's what's going yeah. to save us all. And it initially did work, but the problem is that that competition in the, in the long-term uh, ended up creating this system where speed became critical to accessing markets. So in a sense, high-frequency yeah. trading was the product of a choice back in the 70s not to centralize things. Uh, if we had one yeah. central market somewhere in New Jersey, then everyone would trade there everyone would have the, have the same distance and there wouldn't be this arms race in yeah. finance that we see today. And that choice was was there. It wasn't taken because fragmentation was seen as something that promoted competition and competition was ultimately desirable. But that competition led to a, an arms race in speed, which is what we see yeah. today. So it was rigged in the sense of rigging a sail on a boat which is you just do it in order to catch the wind it was rigged in that sense it wasn't rigged (laughs) in the sense of people planning this at a table somewhere in wall street to make money um i think no one really likes or no one really liked at some point the the fragmentation of the system but now they just have to deal with it
0: yeah i think there's other upshots from 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 the picture you paint for economics and how we think about markets too. So one less lesson of your book is that markets are literally engineered, but there's also these complexities and costs that come, come with that work. So something we chatted about briefly on Twitter and that you mention in the book goes something like this. These systems are so complex that we can't really get our heads around them. No individual can kind of cognitively master these things, but contra libertarians Price systems also break down uh, around these systems, uh, you know, like that the, the markets now the prices like Hayek and others want, you know, don't come to our rescue either. So, I mean, where does that leave us with these things?
1: So that's that's like a fascinating question. I mean, I think that's where that leaves us is in more discussions about bugs or debugging. And yeah. network infrastructures and this, these old metaphors of, of, oh yeah, it's like a switchboard. I mean, Hayek had this nice, nice little quaint image of the price system as a switchboard that sort of managed <laughs> to calculate everything, et cetera, et cetera, because it's centralized all information. But the thing is, if you have a, a system that has dozens of trading venues where a glitch in the speed of one router um, then causes a problem with signals that affect everything. It's not a switchboard. It's more like a sort of network yeah. uh, for online, real-time gaming than a switchboard. And, <laughs> and and that's a very different world because what you need to focus on is not necessarily these ideas of aggregation of information, etc., cetera, et cetera, but actual architectures of markets, uh, looking at Yeah. How the network is configured, latencies, all those different things become relevant for talking about markets. And of course, I'm not sure economics is uh, the way of doing that, but it's a fundamental shift in how markets actually work in practice. Yeah. Yeah. Near the end of the
0: book, you write, finance is a canary in the coal mine of contemporary capitalism. What do you mean by that? And what are some of the lessons we can draw from this book that go beyond finance?
1: So this idea that that markets today are no longer the switchboard and are more like these weird networks with bugs and quirks and topologies and all those things is something that carries over to other domains. And and one of the key things here is this transformation of markets from being these uh, asynchronous, uh, systems where people were competing on the trading floor and they were having their private conversations that then led to a price for something to essentially being queues nowadays. I mean, the the essential architecture of financial markets today is a queue where orders are in order and they're stamped and they go to places and depending on where they are in the queue, they get executed or not. And those transformations in in the organization of interaction are things that we can see elsewhere. I mean, as digital markets and as auction systems increase their scope, um, those same patterns that we observe in finance around fragmentation, around unknowability, et cetera, et cetera, will start to have impacts in other forms of, of social life. I mean, the, the the interconnections that we saw during the pandemic in terms of how um, sort of procurement systems just collapsed because everything is a logistical cue yeah. nowadays is, is yeah. a good example of, of that. It was our little flash crash in the economy, um, yeah. which of course makes sense because everything stopped. But at the same time, the fact that we're still de- dealing with all these quirky things, um, mm-hmm. even after the economy has quote unquote reopened is... Is something that tells us about a fundamental shift in the architecture of, of how things are moved, sold, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah,
0: that's that's wonderful. I mean, just to just to drive your point home here, I heard an uh, an expert on the automotive markets um, talk about how the, one of the reason the the automakers in the U.S. and elsewhere have been doing so poorly is because when the uh, when the coronavirus I mean, when the pandemic hit they pulled out of their queues f- for chips okay they, mm-hmm. they got out of line and they had to shut down produ- production briefly well then when they came back to they decided to turn production back on they were way back behind in the queue so it's literally a, a line problem yeah. is causing it and then you know that that yeah. there's there's literally cars sitting around that the only thing they need is a chip uh, to to go out to the market, yeah. and that's why our used car market is now crazy and, and a mess and yada yada. So it's, just to drive your point home, it, it totally is all about queues in, in very many spaces in our, our lives now.
1: Yeah, yeah. And of course, there's the other uh, sort of cannery in the mind, which is how organizations change. And that's also something that came across the, the pandemic, uh, or from the pandemic, which is, how investments that certain institutions have done in the past um, mm. or groups within those institutions that have been invisible in the past now have way more power in swaying how they behave. And uh, online learning is a good example of that. And the, yeah. the pivots and the emphasis of many higher education institutions that now see uh, this as a, an even bigger opportunity yeah. is, is interesting because again, before the pandemic, we didn't think of it as something fundamentally important. But now having uh, classrooms fitted with cameras and all those things is something that becomes more attractive mm-hmm. for ad- admin and faculty and that allows them to also monetize content in different ways. So, And that's, that wasn't a change pushed by us or by admin necessarily. It's a change of circumstances and contingencies yeah. that that has to do with also having certain sort of niches within the organization. So I I think that finance, finance is really cool because of that. It's, it's sort of stuck in the past, but at the same time, it's like in the future. So we can learn lots of Mm -hmm. things from it that make it interesting.
0: That's nice. I like that. Uh, Speaking of going beyond finance, how, where have you gone after uh, publishing automating finance?
1: So I have shifted gears completely and now I'm studying a very different set of systems. I'm looking at how academics are evaluated and quantified and rewarded and the I mean the the impetus there is also thinking of market like things. Um yeah. finance is all about markets, and actually the evaluation of academics is also a market like experience because it's about counting things and giving them value, and then sort of determining monetary allocations on the basis of that. And specifically, I'm looking at how British academics are evaluated every five years, more or less, uh, and how in that process of evaluation, in that process of determining who is good and who isn't. um, the the evaluation itself is changing the quality of the social sciences in Britain. So yeah. it's a very different world than finance, but it's still a market.
0: Yeah, I think I read this book once. It was called uh, The Inferno by Dante, and it was a description of hell. But um, wh- why, why focus on the British system? Is it just because they're they're so f- much further along in these processes than other parts of the world? or
1: yeah. What's so my... the British system does have some advantages. One is that it's it's nice and small. So it's only a hundred and something institutions. They're all public institutions, so they all depend on the same se- sets of funding. Uh, they all respond to the same regulations, et cetera, et mm-hmm. cetera. Uh, and um, they have like established traditions in econ, sociology, anthropology, political science, which are mm-hmm. the ones I I focus on. So it has to do a lot with that. And this evaluation, this thing which is called the research assessment exercise before and now it's called the research excellence framework is, is very canonical because it involves everyone working in the sector. Every single full-time academic is subjected to this in some way. And Because it is so pervasive and intensive, it's it's quite unique. Um, Of course, the U.S. has informal ways of doing this. Yeah, but there's a lot more complexity in the U.S. than in Britain.
0: Yeah, I mean, it varies so much by university. Are you also I mean, I think if I remember correctly from a different Twitter exchange, you're also kind of following uh administrators and the kind of conferences they go to and how these kind of ideas of management spread around is that right is that yeah. something you're looking at
1: so that's the new project for a different book this would be the third book which is on uh budget models in higher education and this is going to be a much more american story because that's another big infrastructure that we don't know about and that actually oh has God. a lot of effects on on how we we live and and in the last 15 20 years there's been a shift from these older models of of budgeting in higher education the ones that were mostly incremental so you would get the same thing as last year plus two percent as a department and then you figured out what to do with that and now there's these responsibility center management systems that are all about this entrepreneurial spirit of go out and create more classes that will draw in yeah. more students and compete with history and compete with political science and and that is changing um, the patterns of hiring, the way in which uh, sort of disciplines think about themselves, the nature of campus, and it's mostly affecting those disciplines that are not in the limelight. So if you happen to be in archaeology, then that's not the greatest position to be in. Yeah. Even though it's an important part of the university. So it's it's all this yeah. it's about these other infrastructures that are not seen and that are really critical to how knowledge is made and how knowledge is structured in the long run.
0: Yeah, I mean, one one commonality I see between these kind of three your 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 first book and then these two other um, projects you've you've described is um, kind of the force or attractiveness of uh, metrics and kind of quantitative systems for uh, managing all kinds of things, right? I mean, it might be more obviously attractive in uh finance which is you know all about numbers anyway um but this is a question i've been kind of wrestling with a lot uh in a variety of places uh you know we have these kind of old models like you know the frankfurt school which is kind of marxist uh plus psychoanalysis plus a couple other things theory um and one picture in that is this notion of instrumental reason that we are of, you know, many people in our culture have kind of bought into this mental model where like efficiency and instrumentality are the good things that, you know, we, there, there's almost pressure to instrumentalize everything in the world, right? And there's lots of other thinkers beyond the Frankfurt School, like Heidegger, and we can name a ton of people who think about this. But how do you, as a kind of STS uh, thinker today, uh, think about the kind of seeming like prerogative, prerogative pressures and imperatives that administrators and others experience to do these kind of metrics-based things.
1: So that's 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 actually something that that has been influenced. So my thinking around this has been influenced a lot by literatures in STS on care and and also. Uh, from discussions about solidarity and how solidarity is central to shifting and transforming organizational life because the thing is you can have the metrics themselves are powerless I mean the the numbers do not do anything in and of themselves they require people accepting these metrics and applying them in very specific ways and they can be gamed sometimes in an actually positive manner so you can have a ref And it can be fine. It can be something that doesn't affect the quality of your working life, that doesn't make you feel miserable if you have managers and colleagues that do not place value on these numbers and that are willing to stand in front of their managers and say, well, you know what? John did terribly, yeah. but it's because John has been having a tough time. And don't worry, in five years, it will be fine. And anyway, we are a great department, etc., cetera, et cetera, So there's a lot of, of ways in which uh, creating these bonds of solidarity within the modern workplace, which is made difficult, of course, by how work is now organized, is one of the ways of fighting this instrumentalism is... One of the yeah. ways of, of sort of focusing people's attention on the fact that we don't need efficiencies anymore. We live in a super efficient time in history, yeah. except Amen. for fossil fuels, which are like completely terrible. Yeah, But we live in a super affluent moment and we don't need more. We need more solidarity. Yeah. And that's fundamentally what, what matters. And that's, a, that's yeah. a difficult thing because that becomes a sort of choice that is difficult to make because you require others to also be solidarity but it's also a a way of transforming our everyday experience in the markets in higher ed in organizations more generally in a more positive way
0: yeah man amen i love that I, I mean i think it's kind of where hope comes into the picture and i think you know another reason i have hope around these things is some of the more um purely uh quantitative measures of how to do budgets in in higher education like so-called pib models and such which are you know in some kind of very crass way coming down to like counting butts and seats in classes Mm -hmm. and um and you know, just you know, like looking at how much value a course and a professor is is producing on on that level, it, what's amazing is they've gotten introduced in in a lot of places, but the pure version of it has almost never been introduced. And in a lot of universities, it's gotten introduced, and then higher administrators have backed off of it um, and not pushed it all the way through. I think because they see how how detrimental this would be to the life of. The university so i mean i think there's actually there's you know even though it feels hopeless sometimes and believe me i've just spent the last couple days doing the most painful assessment paperwork in my life i've never felt my time be like so wasted ever in my life and it was awful but like you know but like at the same time i think there's actually kind of like malleability and flexibility here you know there there's more space for con- controlling or you know trying to help shape the direction we take this in, then, then maybe the doom and gloom projections say, or something yeah. like
1: that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that that's that's like a very important, also as sensibility that is that is that is brought into a lot of these conversations. Which is a lot of these systems aren't just applied as they as it says on the box. These are not IKEA. Yeah. Even IKEA. I even mean, even even when you open up an yeah. IKEA box. There's a lot of tinkering that goes on yep. in relation to the, the instructions and uh, algorithmic systems, uh, quantified rankings, all these different things, all these different models and instruments end up being applied via some forms of discretion that change the outcomes from res- with respect to what was originally designed. And that's that's good because that space of discretion is is a sort of opportunity to change things.
0: Yeah. Well, if your if your fourth book discovers a lower ring of hell than budget models in higher ed, I don't know what you you will have done. But um, you know, another part of uh, your career that I want uh, people to have a, a a sense of, and I think that you know we haven't really touched on it yet uh, in this conversation, is that you also um, work in and teach computational social science, so you haven't. Kind of lost your quant skills from your undergrad, so like, p- how does computational social science play out in, in in these projects we've been talking about? Maybe the maybe the second or third book, you could say how you're using some of these skills.
1: Yeah. So for the third one, it's going to be more qualitative. I mean, I might try to do yep. some some data collection on on model adoption, but that's a little bit more complicated, and I'm, try- I'm yep. still looking into that that possibility but i think that so in SDS has always been very um very reticent to sort of engage with quantitative methods because of the way the field emerged and the critical position it has against yeah. sort of positivistic schools of thought etc cetera, etc cetera. but i think it's all about creating a stronger narrative and Sometimes the way you build a stronger narrative is with a really nice visualization that conveys the story that your interviews are telling uh, with a nice picture. And a lot of computational methods, I, I feel, provide that additional support. They're not there. I mean, they're there to either highlight patterns that were invisible because we hadn't seen them before, which then invites folks to do qualitative research that answers the, the why and how questions. Uh, and then, of course, there's also moments in which these methods help to bolster some of the claims that your interviewees are making by saying, look, this is not just their idiosyncratic sort of condition in life, this is general. And we can see these patterns occurring across everything. And, and because there's more ability to deal with text, and images and all these other forms of data, then they're slightly more interesting than survey-based research, at least from an STS perspective. Yeah. I think that seeing them in those ways is is it, it makes them interesting. It makes them something that that is great for creating stronger narratives and yep. more compelling explanations.
0: I love that, man. I, I really like how you uh, put that. And, I you know, I just feel like we uh, it would great be great if STS programs gave their students at least a picture of what quantitative methods can can get them when it comes to this storytelling stuff. I just think that too many of our programs, there's there's just there's no none of that at all. It's like you get history mm-hmm. and ethnography or something like that, and, and that's about the end of it. So. I think just in terms of richness of pro- possible approaches on the table, um, yeah. it would be great if we, if we broaden things out. JP, yeah. this was so much fun, man. I knew this would be a great conversation. And um, thank you for taking the time to talk to me today.
1: Thank you so much, Lee. It was really fun. Um, and I hope I wasn't rambling too much, but thank you so much.
0: I hope you enjoyed this episode of our podcast. Peoples and Things, like most things in this world, depends on the work of many people. I want to thank my brother Jake Vinsel for writing the music for the show. I want to thank my buddy Juliana Castro for designing the logos for the podcast. You can check out our work at julianacastro.co. Peoples and Things is a production of Virginia Tech Publishing and the University Libraries at Virginia Tech. Production activities are supported by the Athenaeum, a space in the library that acts as a hub for digital humanities teaching, learning, and creation. Joe Ford is the Athenaeum coordinator and digital humanities specialist at VT Libraries, and he serves as producer and sound engineer for the podcast. For information about other podcasts from Virginia Tech Publishing, visit publishing.vt.edu. I also want to thank you for listening. Thanks.